And welcome to Emerging Form. I'm Rosemary Watola Tromer. And I'm Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Rosemary. I'm really excited for today. We're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a podcast swap. We're actually swapping episodes with another podcast. Rosemary, you want to tell us about this other podcast that we're sharing this week? I will. We're going to share Breathing Wind, which is introspective conversations for grievers, hosted by two fabulous co-hosts, Nyla Francis and Sarah Davis. And we've chosen two episodes, one for this week, one for our bonus episode. And we're going with one that's with me talking about the full range of grief and how creativity allows us to stay open and meet some very difficult moments. It's a fantastic conversation, and I'm sure that everyone's going to love it. So let's give it a listen. And I trust, really trust life itself to rise up and help me meet the things that I cannot control. I trust love to show up and help me meet the things that I cannot control. I'm Sarah Davis. I'm Nyla Francis, and this is the Breathing Wind Podcast. Breathing Wind offers warm, honest, and insightful conversations for journeying introspectively through grief and loss. We like to think of ourselves as essentially a hug in podcast form. So please pull up your comfiest chair grab a cup of tea or coffee, whatever your preference, and join us for our conversation today. We hope it invites you to reflect on your own journey and perhaps makes you feel a little less alone, whatever it is you're grieving. And if you feel inspired to be an ongoing part of our conversation, join our Patreon for more insights, continued reflections, and opportunities to connect. You can also keep up with us by signing up for the newsletter at breathingwind.com. We're truly on this journey together. Rosemary Watola Traumer has been writing a poem every day since 2006, a practice that has changed everything about how she sees and meets the world. She co-hosts Emerging Form, a podcast on creative process, Secret Agents of Change, a surreptitious kindness cabal, and Soul Writer's Circle. Her poetry has appeared on A Prairie Home Companion, PBS NewsHour, O Magazine, American Life in Poetry, on Carnegie Hall Stage, and on River Rocks She Leaves Around Town. Her collection, Hush, won the Halcyon Prize. Naked for Tea was a finalist for the Able Muse Book Award. Her most recent collection is All the Honey. Her daily audio series, The Poetic Path, can be found on the Ritual app. Her daily poetry practice can be read on her blog, A Hundred Falling Veils. I have been receiving Rosemary's poems through her blog for years. 
I'm not actually sure how I first discovered her and signed up for her blog, but one of the things I've always loved and admired about her poems is how often they presence me in a specific moment. Whether she is peeling beets, drinking a cup of tea that a friend gave her, noticing what opens in her when she's taking in some wild, beautiful thing in nature. I'm there in that moment with her, and I'm also exhaling and marveling and savoring. To me, there's always been an element of deep mindfulness in her poems. And then great loss came into her life, and the poems she's written about grief feel so spacious and vitalizing to me. Here is room to feel everything, to be utterly devastated and undone, and to still keep showing up for life. Truly, she has such a gift for speaking to the unfathomable, and it's such an honor to have her here with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Rosemary. Thank you. Gosh, you almost made me cry listening to you introduce me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that thoughtfulness. That was a really generous way to invite me into this space. Thank you. You're so welcome. And tears are also welcome here, just so you know. Oh, well, it's just a matter of time. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things we like to do at the start is just... Take a breath together and to just notice what's most present for you in this moment, knowing that we're here to talk about grief and love because they're really inseparable. And if there's anything you'd like to share about that. Well, I suppose it's something that I didn't know until I did, that they're inseparable, grief and love. Now I couldn't unknow that. I might be crying at some point, too. I feel it coming. (laughs) (laughs) And just to name for our listeners who may not know, part of why we're here is that your son, Finn, and your father both died in 2021. And we will come back to that and whatever you wish to share of their lives and their deaths. But I just wanted to presence that in this moment. Thank you. So among the things both Sarah and I have been so struck by in your work, in your previous interviews you've had, and the conversations on your own podcast, Emerging Form, is your vast openness. Before this conversation today, you shared with us that grief opened you in a violent and unwanted way, yet you're so grateful for the ongoing evolution of opening heart, opening self, and opening soul. I was wondering if you would like to start us off with a poem that speaks to that sense of openness and aliveness. Thank you. Well, the poem I'm going to read is called Meeting Your Death. And I'll say that it came out of reading another person's poem. Gregory Orr is a poet I admire greatly who has done quite a bit of work, decades and decades of work on processing, inviting a new understanding of what it is to be alive and what it is to die in his poetry. And he has a poem called, This is What Was Bequeathed Us. And he writes this, he writes, The Beloved's Clear Instructions 
turn me into song, sing me awake. And I loved reading that he had clear instructions about what he was supposed to do with his grief. I didn't feel like I had very clear instructions, and that was why I wrote this poem. Or it's not why I wrote the poem, but it was certainly informing. This is called Meeting Your Death. Because there are no clear instructions, I follow what rises up in me to do. I fall deeper into love with you. I look at old pictures. I don't look at old pictures. I talk about you. I say nothing. I walk. I sit. I lie in the grass and let the earth hold me. I lie on the sidewalk, dissolve into sky. I cry. I don't cry. I ask the world to help me stay open. I ask again, please let me feel it all. I fall deeper in love with the people still living. I fall deeper in love with the world that is left. This world with its spring and its war and its mornings, this world with its fruits that ripen and rot and reseed, this world that insists we keep our eyes wide, this world that opens when our eyes are closed. Because there are no clear instructions, I learn to turn toward the love that is here, though sometimes what is here is what's not. There are infinite ways to do this right. That is the only way. I feel like I need another breath on that. So magnanimous and aching and capacious all at the same time. Thank you. Thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to say about that poem besides what you said in the intro? Well, I think that one thing that's been so helpful for me, I suppose, in terms of meeting your death, as I say in the title, is that I have had for so long this practice of showing up by writing a poem every day, right? Which was luckily when the stakes were much lower, I had a practice in what is it to show up now and meet what's inside me and meet what's outside me. And what I noticed was that the way that I met and continue to meet grief, loss, is so different from moment to moment. Right now it's right to be quiet, and right now it's right to scream, or right now it's right to move, and right now it's right to be still. And to know that that entire spectrum is available to us at all times. In any moment, any number of things could be the right thing. So that freedom, right? That freedom that honestly came out of writing practice of knowing there were so many ways to do it right on a page, right? That I could only get the poem right if I told the truth. And I feel like the grief has been the same way in that it feels as if I can only do it right if I am as honest as I can be in this moment about what's here. And like I said, what's here is sometimes what's not here. How present that absence is. I really appreciate that because I think Sometimes what gets us sort of stuck is not telling the truth, is when we keep skirting it or shying away from it. Well, and to know that the truth can be a paradox, right? Yes. To know that the truth is I'm okay and I'm not okay at the same time. Yeah, the both and the full experience of it, that the grief isn't just the sadness. There's this full range, this spectrum, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's also something very intuitive about it. 
I think this was true for me too. I didn't feel like I had an instruction manual and I, I searched for one. (laughs) (laughs) I was one of those grievers who thought that I could solve the grief. And so I went to every end trying to figure it out. But the intuition is to follow, follow what you're feeling. And it actually leads into my question for you, which is about your poem, A Day Practice, which is, that's something that you've been kind of known for. And you shared a little bit about it in your podcast, I believe. When you lost Finn, you stopped writing. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that time. Yeah. I said yes, but then it took a minute to to cry. Isn't that amazing how it takes me right back? When you ask that, I go right back. Although I was just saying yesterday to my husband that it's almost like childbirth in that I can remember how much it hurt, sort of, but it's like a woman forgets just how much it hurt to have the child until you have your second child. And then you remember almost instantly, (laughs) oh, right, this hurts. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that in some ways it's the same with grief that I can somewhat touch what it was like in the very first hours, days, weeks, but not quite. So on the day Finn died, and the sweetness of this in a way is that two nights before he died, I wrote a poem about the walk that he and I had taken and how it was worth it to be alive my whole life for just that one night. For just that one night to go for that walk and how happy we were. So what a gift it was I gave myself, huh? To have recorded that moment so I could really remember what a gift that night was and go back to it. So then when when he died, I... um. I immediately wrote a letter to people saying, I'm not going to be sending poems for a while. We've had a family emergency. The reason in the beginning that I couldn't write the poems, although it was interesting to me that that first night, I haven't told anybody this. I remember that first night I was writing poems in my head while I wasn't sleeping. I was composing poems about what it was, you know, and they were just things like, you know, the, I even kind of remember there was something like the night you died, I brushed my teeth, you know, just kind of recording the dailiness along with the surreal tragedy of it. So in a way, even so I wasn't writing poems on paper and I didn't for 49 days, which was an arbitrary number, but has come to have some significance for me, but the not writing was even more about not sharing. My writing practice is not only writing, but it's also, I open it up, as you know, to this big conversation. And there was no part of me that was ready that honestly, that that part takes a lot of energy of going back and forth and back and forth with thousands of people. (laughs) I give a lot of time and energy to writing to people. (laughs) And I couldn't, I couldn't, I needed all of my energy 
to stay open to meet what was present in that moment with Finn, with my husband, with my daughter, and then a slightly larger circle of family and close friends. But that took everything, and I wanted it to take everything. So although I think in many ways there was still a creative impulse, and I even was still doing writing, I wasn't in a position at that point to have a larger conversation about it. It needed to stay very intimate, very cocoonish, very experiential. Just I wanted to stay in that vastly open space and give it everything. Well, A, that's so important to know about yourself and those boundaries. I guess recognize what you need in the moment and what you can do and what you can't do. That's saying the same thing. But I often think about process. And though I love the idea of processing live about, for instance, my mom and caregiving for my mom, I don't want to go there almost because it's still so painful, even though I know it can help people. And it's a challenge, right? Because you know that it could help people, but at the same time, you need to help yourself and heal yourself. So I am sure nobody thought otherwise of the missing poems. Friends, I have to tell you that if there is a benefit that I wouldn't have ever known to having a daily practice that I sent into the world, it was that there was no time ever, ever, except, well, that's not quite true. Maybe we could talk about that. But there was one very brief time that I felt alone in this. And I think grief can be a very lonely process for a lot of people. Well, people knew, they knew something had happened on the day one. By two weeks later, I sent a note about what had happened and let them know, thank you, I'm getting your letters and I appreciate them and I read them all and I thank you out loud, but there's no way I can respond to you. And to this day, every day I receive so many emails from people supporting me, thanking me, loving me. You've been having a conversation about when do you feel seen? Do you feel not seen? I don't think maybe anybody else has ever felt so seen in their grief as I do. And in a way, I wasn't setting out to do it publicly. Look, I had this practice in place and then I just stayed true to that practice and I continue to. And it's been remarkable how it's nourished me to feel so much love from so many people that I'm sure is always there, that that love is always there. But somehow when someone else is hurting, that love gets energized, sent, charged. And um, (laughs) can I tell you a moment about that? The day after he died, I think it was the day after there was a moment when I felt it, this, it was very public very quickly because Finn had put it on Snapchat, a small note. So instantly, everyone in my small town knew already and news spread very quickly about it. And there was a moment then the day after when I felt this giant tsunami of love come. Like it was as if I saw it coming toward me. And there was a moment when I said, no, 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 that's way too much. That's way too much. And I resisted it. And that love just overwhelmed me, flooded me, infused me, took me over. It had zero to do with my no and just has carried me ever since. It was so powerful then and still to feel it so in such an embodied way and to trust it so completely. I trust it so completely. And there was a moment when I thought, 
that's still too much, maybe just a little bit less. And then I imagined even one person not sending love. And I thought, nope, nope, it's just enough. It's just enough. But I've been very aware of it, very physically aware of the love that's been extended to me and the power that it's had in allowing me to continue to show up. So beautiful. Just hearing you talk about that too feels incredibly nourishing. And it also makes me think like that moment when you were like, oh no, this is too much. How sometimes when I'm really feeling tender and vulnerable in my grief, the love and the kindness and compassion almost feels bruising. It's like the more it comes at me, the weepier I get, the more tender I feel, the softer I become. And then it starts letting out all the pain too. And it's like, oh no, no, I just want to keep myself contained. And yet I feel like that's part of building the container of grief to hold us. I was a journalist when my dad died and I used to have my own column and I actually did turn to writing almost immediately to begin processing it. I remember the night he died. So he was in St. Lucia and I was here in Philly, but I was with him in St. Lucia when he died. And I remember lying in bed and I couldn't sleep and my editor knew that I had gone to be with my dad while he was dying. And I just woke up and I started writing. And then the next day I emailed it to my editor and I was like, I have no idea if you're going to publish it. This is just what came out of me last night. And then when I got back to work to have the emails and the calls and like all that support, it so carried me and buoyed me and made me feel seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I can really appreciate having not nearly as many people as you have had rush in to love you, but definitely enough that I felt held in my grief and in my feelings of loneliness and not being understood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, my guess about it, friend, is that in that moment you were able to write in such a way that was so vulnerable and true that it deeply touched other people because it was not polished or you didn't know if it was good, but that wasn't why you'd written it. You didn't write it to be good, right? You'd written Mm -hmm. it because you had to. That's what touches people, right? Yeah. It's like what you keep saying, what's true for me in this moment. so much for listening to Emerging Form. We want to give a big shout out to a couple of our paid subscribers who have left us really kind reviews on iTunes. For instance, Jill Berkey, who recently wrote, wonderful. I love this podcast. I feel like I'm among friends when I listen to Christy and Rosemary talk about the creative process. One day, Rosemary shared a new poem that moved me and I knew I had to start being a paid subscriber then and there. And thank you, Jill. (laughs) Rebecca Reynolds-Weil wrote, Amazing! You will laugh and grab a pen at the same time. This is a fantastic rollicking soup of humor, depth, thoughtful and practical suggestions, and rich creativity. The two hosts are a joy, and they wrap in wonderful guests to add to the discussions. Subscribe and share this delight. What a gift! I love that they both added subscribe to other people. 
That's nice. I know. Isn't that sweet? Thank you so much for your support, dear listeners. You make this podcast possible. And if you want to join Jill and Rebecca, you can sign up as a paid subscriber at emergingform.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. I wanted to ask you about your books. You have two new books coming out this year. One's a collaboration with Rishani Rea, Beneath All Appearances, and Unwavering Peace, which is centered on loss and all the honey. And you mentioned this before, so much about what you wrote before Finn's death was about almost like falling in love with the world. And now grief has become somewhat of a main subject of exploration for you. I'm just wondering if you had a hope or an intention when you were writing these books or something you wanted to offer grievers. Mm. What a beautiful question. Thank you. Well, the book with Roshani was just an incredible gift from her, really. She found my poems and she has a retreat center in Hawaii that she sometimes allows people to come and grieve. And there was a woman there who had just recently lost her son. And Roshani, as a way of supporting her, making collages. She's a phenomenal collage artist and has done many, many, many books. And in her effort to find these poems, she found text from Damasina Tamas, who is the other collaborator. And then she found me, which is kind of funny because when she first reached out to me, it was just weeks before my son's memorial. And I had selected a poem that she had written as one of three that we printed out and taped on the backs of all of the chairs so that people could read somewhat uplifting poems (laughs) to help them in those moments at the memorial. So I was familiar with her already. Well, when she wrote me, she would like to use some of my work in these collages. Of course, I said yes. And as she continued to make them, she thought this should be a book. So that's how it happened. It really took zero effort of my own. (laughs) She found poems that she liked (laughs) and pulled text from them. There are very few complete poems in that book, but there, which I think is part of the beauty of it really for someone who's grieving is at least if you were like me, I had extremely limited capacity to take in information, written information specifically. So a handful of words was something I probably could have done versus a whole poem, which was a little too much, much less the book of how to. (laughs) I definitely rejected all those. (laughs) So that particular book has the voices of four women who have lost children. It's not just for people who've lost children, though. I feel like the text in there, the images in there are appropriate for anyone who's grieving. So I'm really glad that that book will be available to people. It has so much love in it. It has so much love in it. And it's an unflinching, open-hearted willingness to show up. And I think it's also a very, uh, a book that's open to letting anyone show up exactly as they are in that moment, too. So that should be out, I think, in March. And then All the Honey, so Finn died in August. And in February, I got a call from a friend of mine, Stephen Nightingale, who said, you know, my publishing partner and I, would like to publish your next book, (laughs) which friends, I want you to know that just doesn't happen a lot to poets. (laughs) There are not a lot of people clamoring at our doors and saying, please send us your poetry. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so it was pretty remarkable when that happened. And as we started talking and I suggested these are some things the book could be about, the publisher very quickly said to me, Elizabeth Dilley said, well, we thought maybe you could do all of it in one book. And I immediately said, I don't think so. I don't think that I could have a book that had both the death of my son and Mr. Clean in my kitchen seducing me in the same cover. That just didn't quite seem possible. So I said, okay, I'll think about it. And what happens next? I'll just tell you how it happened. Even so, it's still hard for me to believe myself. But a couple of weeks later, after that conversation, I woke up one morning and I was lying there and I had a vision that my dad and my son had carved into my bedroom wall in all caps, these words, we love you, all the honey. And I knew that they had just given me the title for the book. And I was like, what? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I just want to emphasize that I don't think of myself as like a person who has visions or I'm a very practical person, despite the fact that I'm a poet. And so I spent a whole day wondering about that. It's kind of on point for what we've been talking about so far today, which is that I realized that all the honey that's ever been made was made from the sweetness of nectar, but also from the bitterness of the pollen, which is what feeds the bees. And thinking of it in that way, I thought, well, then, of course, all this wide spectrum of poems all belong in one cover because that's how the world really is. That's what it really is to live a life, is to experience all these things. And as much as we might like to section them off, this is the book about grief. This is the book about joy. In truth, <laughs> we are asked to meet all of it. We're asked to meet it all. So I did. That's what happened in this book, which it comes out April 18th. I'm so thrilled with this book because I think it does do that. It was interesting to try and organize this book, right? Because maybe part of me was like, here's the grief poems, here's the happy poems. And what I ended up doing was I found a, you would never know this probably if I did not tell you, but I found a model for change, a four-step model for change. And I thought, well, what would happen if I just put the poems into each of these four steps that take us from kind of that inception vague place to that more I'm dreaming about it phase to the I'm implementing it phase to the, oh, this is what happens when we do what we're out there doing phase. So at, those are the four phases that wasn't very elegantly said. And there it is, the arc of the book, which somehow the poems very sweetly evenly fell into play, into place. And um, they feel like they are really telling the story of what it is to be alive. Yeah, I... I had a feeling when I was reading it, I did read it from front to end. I think at first I tried to skim, like pick and choose. I realized that was not going to work. <laughs> and I felt like an album and I felt really inspired afterwards. I don't read much poetry. <laughs> I, feel like I, to, I feel like I need to apologize by saying that to a poet. No, that makes um, you my favorite reader, actually. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was just writing in the margins and I was just like, oh yeah, this reminds me of something. And I, I wrote an entire 
separate thing. And I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. And then, of course, then I went down the rabbit hole that is your conversations that you have out there. And it was really refreshing to feel that way. I think even as a grief podcaster, quote unquote, (laughs) it's hard to consume similar content. So I admit that I was hesitant. And then when I get it, did go into it, it was like there were these breaths. There was a breath of, of fresh air in between. So I just wanted to share that reflection with you. Mm, thank you. Thanks for reading it in order. That actually, <laughs> that thrills me. <laughs> thank you. I did the same thing and I don't usually read poetry books like that. I always just flip through them and I'm like, oh, I like this one and I like this one, but I did the same thing. Thank you. Yeah, I don't read them front to back either. Just so full disclosure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't seem like the way, but (laughs) somehow this one invited that, I think. I'm so curious because of the way you inhabit all of these moments with so much presence. If there's ever an element of being startled, like, oh my gosh, I'm grieving and my heart is breaking. And still there's the joy of noticing this flower or whatever that is. Like I remember the first time I let myself really, really laugh after my dad died and like almost like watching myself sitting on the couch with my friends, like, oh my gosh. I'm laughing and it feels like genuine laughter. How is that possible? Isn't that astonishing? Do you know, I laughed the day he died a a lot, a lot, and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. But as I was talking to friends, I think... Again, you know, I I think, yes, of course, I, I think I feel astonished 10,000 times a day, right? Um, Oh, here, this is now my word for this year was hello. And I chose it because I've noticed this wasn't on purpose. I think it started with teaching that I say, I'm feeling stuck. And I'll say, oh, hello, stuck. I'm feeling sad. And I say, oh, hello, sad. I feel disgruntled. Oh, hello, disgruntled. I noticed that I had started to say hello to everything. And I like it. I like that. I like that noticing, oh, that's what's here right now. Without judging it, without feeling like, but I was supposed to feel sad right now and now I'm laughing or I'm supposed to be laughing right now and now I'm crying. You've already noticed, I think I don't have a lot of a filter. (laughs) When it's going to come through, it just comes through. But I'll say this, that I am very grateful that I had for about 10 years before Finn died, maybe a little more, a spiritual teacher, Joy Sharp, who, it's Satsang is the name of the practice. And she said the very first time I ever talked to her, I think, can you say yes to the world as it is? That was something that was very intellectual until it became a way to live. And I feel like those moments of being startled, as you say, are just a willingness to say yes to the world as it is in this moment, whatever it is. I also feel as if Finn, my son, was the biggest teacher in this for me. And I think this is the lesson that I most did not want to learn 
before he was born, I had an eating disorder for 18 years. And I was really good at thinking that everything was fine, (laughs) even though it was clear that it wasn't. But I thought everything was perfect. I mean, I really believed it. I really did. Even though I could probably know as a rational, as a smart, as an intelligent human, I knew it wasn't okay. Well, when Finn was born, a boy, which was something I couldn't have fathomed. I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with that? And then he screamed (laughs) for a whole year. He screamed every day, not the first month, but every day he'd nurse and scream and sleep and scream and nurse and scream and sleep and scream. It was not like, you know, an hour of colic in the afternoon. No one could tell us what was wrong, right? It was very difficult to know how much pain he was in and continue to meet him. But I tell you that that forced me to meet the world as it was. There was no way to pretend that a screaming baby was okay. And then Finn turned out to be this button-pushing kid who just thrilled and he was such a provocateur. What if I do this? What if I do this? And then the biggest thing, right, with his death, can I say yes to this? Can I say yes to this world that is, this thing that I would most want to say no to? So in a way, Finn's birth and life and death have all been these enormous teachers in how do I say yes to the world that is? How do I show up in this moment, as astonishing as it is, and continue to stay yes and say yes and continue to stay open? And that's still the practice. I think about how sometimes parents who have lost children to suicide, they're burdened and caught up in so much guilt and all the feelings of, was my love not enough to save him? Like, will I be judged as unfit? Like all the if onlys. And I'm wondering how maybe that practice has helped you hold it differently because I was so struck where you wrote, I can't remember, maybe it was on a blog post or in a prior conversation with us before the recording that you refused to vilify this experience because it also made him this astonishingly brilliant comet. I felt like such a profound sense and surety of the love and the enoughness in what you wrote and this big, rich life that he had. And I'm just wondering like how you kind of hold his death and this other practice that you mentioned. It was not easy to be Finn's mother. That's true. Like I say, he was a button pusher. It was very easy to love him. And he was astonishingly bright, this being who seemed to excel at anything he put his mind to. Won the chess tournament and he won the science fair when he built his own computer that had all different color, like it was a work of art. And then he built computers for all his friends and he had straight A's and he won the fencing tournament after we'd been been taking fencing for just a few months. You know, he was astonishing in his drive to thrill and see what he was capable of. And what you're referring to, Nilo, is the letter that I wrote people two weeks after he died. It was the letter that I sent out. And it's there on my blog where I explained that he took his life. And when he had all this success, why would someone have done that? And the truth was to the rest of the world, I think he just was this giant shining being who did everything right. At home, it was a very different story in that, of course, we saw that too. And he was tender and loving and kind and generous and full of so much not enoughness, this hole that nothing, nothing could fill. 
I think if I had not been honestly so utterly devoted to him, <laughs> I don't know what it would be like now. I really don't have any doubt that I loved that boy the very best I could. That does not mean I didn't screw up constantly. I'm sure I did. But I do not doubt that I loved him the best I could. I know it. I know that he knew it too. So I think that's gone a long way for me, not feeling like I could save him. Like that was my job and I failed because I actually know that I did everything I could. I found mentors and doctors and it wasn't a surprise that he took his life. He had talked about it a long time and we had found so many resources for him. So then I wonder, this is going to probably be very difficult for some people to hear. And uh, I don't want to argue about it, but but I wonder if anything could have been done because I know how hard he tried. I know he did the very best he could. I know that he knew that he didn't have to be the best. I know that the messages that he got were that he was more than enough, no matter what. I know he got those messages loud and clear every day. And yet this insatiable hole in him. So when it comes to guilt, do I feel regret or guilt? Those have not been very loud voices for me. I feel like I've been spared that. Or spared by whom, by what? I guess maybe that's not the right way to say it. I feel as if I have such certainty, and I couldn't say this for every other person's life, but I know that boy, I did everything I could for that boy. I did. I know it. Wow. Which helps me then know we control anyone else. Could my love save him? Could my love save anyone? No. No, it couldn't. That his life was his and his death was his. His choice to take his life was his choice that I would have made differently for him if I could have, but it wasn't mine. I think, honestly, since Finn's death, that I understand that in such a full body way right? And maybe even really trust that I don't get to control it. And I trust, really trust life itself to rise up and help me meet the things that I cannot control. Life itself and, as we were talking about earlier, love. I trust love to show up and help me meet the things that I cannot control. I don't know why he didn't have that. And how do I know that he didn't? How do I know that he didn't? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I've gotten to be really good friends with I don't know. That seems like so much surrender to me. I feel like the grief journey is one of such surrender, and that's what you're doing. Holy moly, right? And I also feel like, isn't it interesting? In those first months after he died, I remember people would say like something about surrender, or maybe I would even say something about surrender. And I would think that even makes it sound like a little too much agency. 
Like I really, I was calling it autonomic life, (laughs) which is the same way that your lungs work, breathe and your heart beats. I felt like I was being lived by life and it required nothing of me, nothing. I needn't do a thing. And life showed up and lived for me, through me, because I couldn't, I couldn't anything. And that was a... Maybe that's the biggest gift I've ever been given is that trust that I don't need to do anything, no effort at all. It wasn't like I was surrendering. It was more like I was being surrendered. It just makes it sound like I did something, which I really didn't. I did nothing. I did less than nothing. I just was lived. I was so aware of it for a long time. I like talking about it now because I can still feel the deep truth of it, even though I think now I have some more sense of control has come back. So I like remembering nothing that's required of me. Nothing. Well, I hate to end us. (laughs) I know we're getting toward the end of our, we're probably over time at this point. Um, I'm like, I have so many more things I want to ask you. This could go on for part two. Well, I'll come back anytime, friend. I'll cry with you any day. <laughs> and love. Um, yeah, yeah. We do like to end with five questions. Okay, <laughs> I'm ready. Um, which are kind of meant to be quick moving, of course. We did find that they weren't very quick moving when we did it to ourselves. Yes. <laughs> yes, it I'll in fact my became, best. <laughs> it became so, an entire conversation when we yes. did. <laughs> well, that's kind of how it is with grief. Yeah. <laughs> so, what would you say is your go-to comfort food? Well, I'm going to break your question just a little bit. I think what I go to more than anything is tea. I love kind of fruity black teas with soy milk. And I would rather drink tea, which is what happens a lot of the time is I just kind of, it's not like I don't want, I love eating. I love eating. I eat a lot. Don't worry about me. But I love drinking tea. I love it so much. But if I had to have it food, if if we're going to be sticklers, it'd be potato chips for sure. If your grief were a song title, what would it be? Well, I'm not sure I am answering your question. I'm gonna, I'm just answering all your questions, not quite the way you meant them, aren't I? I'm not trying to be contrary. But there was a song that I would say saved my life in those first days, weeks after Finn died. And it's Deep Peace by Libana. And um, Deep Peace of the Rolling Waves to You. Oh, it's I know be- that song. Isn't it? It's yes. a beautiful song. And my singing group used to perform it. It was too boring for everybody else, but I was always like, can we please do it? It's a very slow, repetitive song that just each line is offering deep peace, deep peace of these different... I couldn't even remember the lyrics. I just remember deep peace, da-da-da-da-da-da. But I had that melody and those words, deep peace, which comforted me in the beginning. And now... I think that grief itself, in the process of giving ourselves over to grieving, 
there is deep peace to be found there. I wouldn't have known that before. But now I know that to just let myself completely be with grief, however it is in that moment, is to find deep peace, is to be deeply peaceful. Yeah, I feel myself sinking into that with you. And what's one thing you wish people knew about grief? Hmm. That it is so different for everybody. When was the last time you felt seen? Right now. <laughs> I feel very seen right now. <laughs> Thank you so much to both of you for giving me this sense in this moment together, but also the fact that you read my book in order, the fact that you went and listened to other podcasts and interviews, and I feel very seen, known, cared for, invested in by you. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a gift that is. Thank you. It's an honor. It really is. Yeah, thank you for sharing so much and for inspiring so many people. Last question is, what is your favorite form of grief care? Okay, I noticed you didn't ask, when's the last time you cried? And I want you to know that, because of course, everybody knows that that was about four minutes ago. But but I want you to know that for the last few days, I've been kind of keeping track. I'm like, maybe this will be the last time I cried. Nope. Okay, maybe this will be the last time I cried. <laughs> Not, maybe this will be the last time I cried. So I've been kind of keeping track and every, you know, I kept beating my own record for, no, it's going to be sooner. No, it'll be even sooner. So just so you know, I, now I've already forgotten. What was your question? Forgive me. <laughs> let's, let's just scrap that question and talk about the last time you cried. <laughs> Well, you know, it was just a few minutes ago. <laughs> I was having this awesome conversation about grief <laughs> in which we laughed our butts off and I couldn't stop from crying over and over many times. Yeah. But I only used one tissue re remarkably. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that is some conservation happening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how can listeners find you after this episode oh, well let's see the daily poems are on a blog called a hundred falling veils that's all spelled out a hundred falling veils.com my website is wordwoman.com and I'll just say that on the website, there are lots of resources, which would include videos of me talking about poems and offering poetry prompts. I have a YouTube channel, rosemary Tromer, and there's even a whole thing about grief, a whole, I call them thought shops, where it's 45 minutes of me reading poems and giving prompts and talking about them. I could go on. I have a new daily poetry app. It's called The Poetic Path, and it's coming out on Ritual on March 20th, and that'll be every day. You can listen to me read a poem, and then I'll talk a little bit about its inspiration. I'll read it again and then offer ideas for how you might think about it or not. Just showing up and listening to the poem is really all that's asked for you, and noticing how it might change the way you see the world. That's probably enough. But there's a few more. If you go to my website, you can find them. <laughs> Yes, yes. I would definitely describe you as a multi-talented poet. Many, many areas of your life and many, 
ways that you share your gifts? It's in through everything. That's, I think, what Nyla was saying at the very beginning, and that was very apt, that it changes everything about the world. It's not just something that happens on a page. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you take in the world as a poem. So would you like to send us out with one? Of course I would. Of course I would. Thank you for asking. Let's see. So this is a poem that I wrote about four years ago. I'd forgotten about it. As you can imagine, there's thousands of them and I tend to forget them. (laughs) But my friend Kaylee Nasbo, who I mentioned earlier, the tea giver, who is also an incredible piano player, I heard her read this yesterday and I thought, oh, there it is. Look at that. It's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. And I realized that I had set myself up for many years to, I'd been preparing, not for Finn's death per se, but I've been preparing to stay open in a difficult time. This poem is called Interstellar, and it begins with a quote from Joanna Macy. The heart that breaks open can contain the whole universe. Give me a heart that breaks. Ears willing to hear the difficult news. And legs that do not choose to run from it. Yes, give me a heart big enough to accommodate a wrestling match inside. A mind that knows no one wins a war. Hands that move to help, no matter what the mind might say. Give me a heart that opens. Long after it thinks it's already open. And lips that know when to listen. Give me a heart that knows itself as other hearts. Give me feet that will stand when someone must stand for justice. And a spine flexible enough to turn and see all sides. Snow falls on all my thoughts. It sometimes takes a long time to melt, a long time before I remember again to pray, to be open, to pray for a heart that breaks, to notice the stars shining from the inside. I'm Nyla Francis. And I'm Sarah Davis, and we are co-hosts of Breathing Wind. Jester Fuentes is our editor. Thank you so much for listening. If you feel inspired to be part of our community, please join our Patreon. And of course, if you want the latest updates, sign up for our newsletter at breathingwind.com. Sending hugs from our hearts to yours. You've been listening to Emerging Form. This is Rosemary Watola Tromer, and my co host is science writer Christy Ashwanden. Our fabulous audio producer is Leah Shaw. Our music is created and performed by Kira Kopostansky and edited by Leah Shaw. Kate LaRue designed our logo. Jack Mueller, of course, inspired our work and the name of this podcast. As he always said, you must obey the poem's emerging form. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Emerging Form. Did you know that for just a few bucks a month, you can become a paid subscriber and get bonus episodes every other week? 
Go to emergingform.substack.com to sign up. And if you really want to help us out, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.